This is Cashflow Ninja, Episode 4, with Minesh Bindi. Welcome to the Cashflow Ninja, the podcast empowering and inspiring people to discover how to generate their own income and manage, grow, and protect their own wealth in the new economy. Now, here is your host, MC Laubscher. Hello everyone, MC Lobsch here and welcome to another episode of the Cashflow Ninja podcast. We have a very interesting show for you today. Today we will discuss money, currency, fiat currency and gold and silver. And we have a very interesting and inspiring guest that's doing remarkable things with his company and providing loads of value to people in over 39 countries in the world. Most people get up every day and go to work so that they can be paid money or what they think is money. Money determines the quality of life you live, the living standard of you and your family, the education of your children, and also the medical care you can receive, which also impacts how long you can live. Money also gives you options. Many of us are slaves to it, but what is money? We've had many vehicles through which we have exchanged goods and services with each other throughout time. You know, in the beginning, we started with borrowing items of equal value with each other. For example, if I had chicken and eggs and you had meat, milk, and cheese, we would trade with each other freely and reach a trade where we both feel that we've exchanged items of equal value with each other. So, you know, if you had a cow and I had 10 chickens, we would consider that an equal trade. In economic terms, this was referred to as a coincidence of wants. But what if I had eggs and chickens, but I didn't want the meat and milk and cheese that you had, but I wanted tools and lumber from someone else, but the person that had meat, milk and cheese still wanted my eggs and chickens. The solution was to find a medium which allowed an easier exchange of goods and services with each other. So money was brought in to facilitate this easier exchange of goods and services and we've had many, many forms of money from seashells, tulips, coca beans, tea, and gold and silver. It's really important here to note that money was never created by governments, but by the people and the free market. Money was whatever people agreed upon. If they agreed that money was tea, then you know the tea was money, and that's what was used for exchange. If they agreed it was seashells, that's what it was. Money was a representation of value since it could be traded for valuable goods and services. It was also a unit of account. A certain amount of money was equal to a value of a certain amount of goods and services, and it also was a store of value. Money's had many forms, but gold and silver has been the money instrument that civilizations have settled on throughout time since the Egyptians started using it 5,000 years ago. Aristotle defined the characteristics of a good form of money in the following way. He said it must be durable. Money must stand the test of time of the elements. It must not fade, corrode, and change throughout time. Money must be portable. Money must hold a high amount of worth relative to its weight and size. It must also be divisible. Money should be relatively easy to separate and recombine without affecting its fundamental characteristics. And it should be fungible. Each unit is the same as the next one. And money should also have intrinsic value. The value of money should be independent of any other object and contained in the money itself. So we have a medium of exchange, a unit of account. Pure gold is pure gold anywhere. Silver is silver anywhere. Portable, durable, divisible, and fungible 
each unit is the same as the next unit. You know, a gold coin in United States is a gold coin in South Africa is a gold coin in China. Money should be limited in quantity to maintain its value, and that's been the reason why gold and silver has been money throughout time. When people started to accumulate a lot of gold and silver coins, they started to store them with goldsmiths, and they were issued certificates that was a claim on the gold and silver that they'd stored with these goldsmiths, just as you have a claim check on clothes that you drop off at the dry cleaner. It wasn't safe to travel with a lot of precious metals, so it was just easier to travel with these certificates from the goldsmiths and trade with them. The service was later transferred to banks that stored precious metals, and the banks issued bank notes. This is really an oversimplification, really, of how currency and paper money was introduced, but my point here is just to help you understand a little bit of the concept and the background of it. So there are three different mediums of exchanges, money, currency, and fiat currency. It's very important to know the difference between the three. Currency has had the same attributes than money, medium of exchange, unit of account, portable, it's durable, divisible, and fungible, except that it hasn't been a store of value. Currency is backed by gold and silver and is a claim check on the gold and silver. A currency backed by gold is as good as gold. A fiat currency exists at the dictate or by fiat from a government. If you look at your paper dollar, it says legal tender for all public and private debts on your note. It has to be accepted by law. Fiat currencies are not backed by anything. It's backed by the faith and confidence of the country where they are issued in. It's important here to note that every fiat currency that's ever been created in the history of the world has failed. Even in the United States, we have had the Continental Dollar that was created by the Continental Congress to pay for the Revolutionary War. It was not backed by anything, and it was devalued to such an extent that it was worthless. Hence the saying, not worth a Continental. This scared the Founding Fathers of the United States so much that they included into the U.S. Constitution that gold and silver would be the only forms of money to be used. During the Civil War, the Confederate States created a Confederate Dollar, or a Grayback, and the Union created a United States greenback dollar. Neither of these two legal tender fiat currencies were backed by gold and silver, and both became worthless. After the Civil War, the United States returned to the classical gold standard money system, where the currency was backed by gold. The world's money system has changed every 30 to 40 years. After World War I, the world money system changed to what was known as the gold exchange standard, where the currency was partially backed by gold. In the United States, $50 was backed up by $20 worth in gold, 40% reserve ratio. In 1913, the United States passed the Federal Reserve Act, which created the Federal Reserve Bank of the United States, a central bank, the third one in the history of the country, after the other two had their charters removed. The same year, the United States also enacted the income tax, quick side note is that a central bank and a heavy progressive income tax system are two of the ten planks of the Communist Manifesto written by Karl Marx. The Federal Reserve Bank took over control of the United States money supply in 1913. In 1944, the money system changed once again to the Bretton Woods system, where world leaders agreed upon the new system in Bretton Woods, New Hampshire. The countries agreed to keep their currencies fixed to the dollar, and the dollar was fixed to gold. The U.S. dollar became the world's reserve currency because countries settled their international balances in dollars. 
and U.S. dollars were convertible to gold at a fixed exchange rate of $35 an ounce. Currencies could be converted to dollars and then to exchange for gold by governments only, not people. It's interesting to note here that the United States did not enter World War II until very late. European farms were turning to battlefields and farmers to soldiers. Auto factories started making tanks and toaster manufacturers started making bullets and machine guns. All the consumer goods and food and grains was imported from the United States at the time and trade imbalances was settled in gold. The United States ended up with two-thirds of the world's gold. The United States also loaned European countries money in dollars that was owed. In August 1971, the world's money system changed again to the dollar standard. With the Nixon shock, President Richard Nixon ended convertibility of U.S. dollars to gold, beginning a new era of fiat money. Since all the currencies in the world was backed by the U.S. dollar, and the dollar was no longer backed by gold, every country in the world now had a fiat currency. After August 1971, the value of the dollar floated against the other major currencies in the world. There are no currencies today backed by anything. They're all fiat currencies. So without going into a discussion about central banks and fractional reserve banking, we'll do that in a future podcast, it is important to note that the central banks control the money supply of countries around the world. When central banks increase the money supply, it results in inflation, and citizens see the purchasing power of their money decrease. When the money supply decreases, this results in deflation, with prices of goods and services dropping. We see inflation in the prices of goods and services as well as asset prices. Inflation really favors the wealthy since they have their savings and assets that increase in price and really hurt the middle class and poor since the cost of everything else increases. It also punishes the most productive members of society, the people that produce more than they consume and save the difference in their country's currencies. Since the Federal Reserve Bank took over the money supply of the United States, the U.S. dollar, have lost 98% of its value. Things have not gotten more expensive. Your money has become worthless. If you control the money, currency, or fiat currency, you control the world, and the central banks control the money, currency, and fiat currency in the world. Meyer Amschel Rothschild from the Rothschild banking family said, Give me control over a nation's money supply, and I care not who makes the laws. Thomas Jefferson remarked in a debate about central banking, if the American people ever allow private banks to control the issue of their currency, first by inflation, then by deflation, the banks will deprive the people of all the property until their children wake up homeless on the continent their fathers conquered. The issuing power should be taken from the banks and restored to the people to whom it properly belongs. By devaluing the purchasing power and value of your savings, Central banks and governments are stealing your economic energy and stealing your time, freedom, and wealth. My guest today started a business on a solid philosophical foundation, values, and principles to help people protect the value of their savings by teaching them how to invest in gold and silver and also show them how to use their gold and silver to create income streams. My guest today is Minesh Bendy from Gold and Silver for Life. Minesh started negotiating and selling real estate at 16 years old. Together with his father, they pioneered a unique no-money-down real estate transaction process in the UK. He went on to help investors buy over £20 million worth of property with the strategy, in addition to doing his own very first real estate deal for three flats in the heart of London's financial district, 
which netted him a cash back on the purchase of £68,000 and £250,000 in equity at just 18 years old. After a friend told him to start helping people learn how to do what he was able to do, what came to him so naturally, he created an education company and, and spoke at others in his own seminars around the UK twice a month for three to four years. He's been invited to share the O2 Arena stage with Sir Richard Branson at the age of 23, and he's spoken around the world from Hawaii to New Zealand, along with other amazing business icons like Steve Wozniak, the co-founder of Apple Computers. This far, he's given a total of 551 presentations to high net worth investors around the world, being invited to speak at Regions Business School and built three companies to help investors use the strategies he's learned and used to acquire real estate, the stock market, and now his attention has turned to helping investors acquire gold and silver as income-generating assets after the financial crisis of 2008. You can access the advanced gold and silver investing webinar that Minesh and his company Gold and Silver for Life is hosting at cashflowninja.com forward slash gold silver webinar. And you can also access his 20-minute gold and silver savings account training at cashflowninja.com forward slash gold silver savings. I will include a link to this exclusive webinar and gold and silver savings account training at cashflowninja.com forward slash 004 along with our show notes from today's episode. During the first two months of our podcast, we're giving away a $500 Visa gift card. All you have to do to get entered into the drawing is go to cashflowninja.com forward slash iTunes and rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast. Hey, this is John Lee Dumas from Entrepreneur on Fire, and you're listening to the Cashflow Ninja podcast with your host, MC Lobsher. You must be prepared to ignite. Thank you for joining me and my guest, Anish Bindi. Anish, welcome to the show. MC, thank you so much for having me here. Manish, can you please share a little bit about your background and your journey, how you got started on your entrepreneurial and investing career to building your business, Gold and Silver for Life? Uh, well, we have to take it all the way back, actually, for, for, to really understand that. Um, I was 14 years old, and my father was going to networking meetings and uh, just everything we're all used to now. And at 14 years old, he used to take me with him. In his mind, it was just to, for me to understand how to shake somebody's hand, how to say hello, how to introduce myself and learn these skills that I think are missing right now in the world. And at 16, I was watching him negotiate a real estate deal on the phone. And very arrogantly, I said, hey, I could do that too. And unlike, unlike uh, what we would expect him to do, instead of saying, you know, get out of here, he said, show me. And I had that moment, that moment of fear, you know, like when we overcommit to something <laughs> yeah. and uh, we don't really know what we're getting into. And um, I had that moment of fear. And after that, I just had to go prove it. And so that really started my journey into negotiating real estate deals. And then I did my own uh, because I didn't have any fear. I didn't have any preconceived notions of what could happen, what should happen. You know, if I speak to a real estate developer and I ask for a 30% discount, you know, is there, a, is there a problem with that? I didn't have anything like that. So very quickly, I started becoming, uh, well, I became, you know, the best negotiator that we knew because simply because I didn't have any expectations of what to actually ask for. 
And so that led to negotiating real estate deals. We put together 20 million pounds worth of property deals over that period. And then I did my own, I bought my own uh, amount of properties. By then I was, I was speaking to investors and I'm bear in mind, I'm about 16 and a half when I started speaking for the first time to investors by negotiating these real estate deals. And the reason why they wanted to know is because simply nobody could negotiate a higher deal, a higher discount. Um, And that's the beautiful thing I love about working with investors now is that really there is no discrimination on anything besides can you get the result, you know, and I like, I like, I like people with that mindset. And so that led to uh, meeting a friend of mine who said, hey, you should speak on stage. And again, that created uh, everything that we do with speaking. And since then, I've spoken to them. A lot of presentations um, to investors and spoken to a lot of people, and it went from real estate to the stock market. And then in 2008, after the crash happened, I decided that I really wanted to shift what I was doing in terms of what I was teaching and work more with higher net worth investors and really with people who were looking at a way to protect capital that they'd worked so hard to acquire, simply because... You know, I looked at the risks and what happened in 2008, and it made me very clear that, you know, the people that were taking the risks that lost a lot of money knew that they were taking the risks. It's really the people in Main Street who didn't even know that these risks were were, were a possibility that really needed the help. Uh, you know, a trader knows what risks they're taking. But when you're an investor and you have no idea about leverage and you have no idea about what the next trend is, that's really a risk that can come sideways and, and hit you. And that was what I decided that I wanted to wanted to help people with. And gold and silver is where I put my money. And I thought I had something pretty unique to offer to the gold and silver space um, in terms of being able to generate a cash flow with gold and silver like real estate. And so that's how gold and silver for life started in 2010. What is the best advice you've ever received and the biggest lessons that you've learned along your journey? Wow. Uh, the best advice, I would have to say, actually, I've, lived, I've received a lot of advice, but one thing that always sticks with me, particularly with investing, is time, and my dad taught me this, time in the market is more important than timing the market. And I think that why that stuck with me a lot is because it forces me to look for hedges now. So anything that I'm doing now, it's like, can I hold this investment for 10 years? Can I hold this for 15 years? What are the risks of holding it for 15 years? What are the cash flows going to be like? Can I manage those cash flows? And it just sort of prevents me from getting into anything that I can't hold for the long term. I feel like too many investors, the biggest thing that I've seen is just that rush to get into something without assessing the long-term risks and also the long-term cash flows of that. The biggest lesson that I ever learned was probably losing $100,000 in 15 minutes, being over leveraged on a silver trade when I was trading. Wow. Uh, <laughs> that, uh, <laughs> that was a very exciting 15 minutes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I can't even imagine. Yeah, so that was, that was exciting. Uh, but that, was that, that one moment taught me the dangers of leverage. I was very, very lucky, obviously, being very young and also having a business to support that. But somebody who is a normal investor suddenly learning about portfolio margin and leveraging to the hilt uh, on an investment and suddenly the market goes wrong, uh, how do you recover from that? You know, especially if if you've got a million dollar portfolio and you lose a hundred thousand and 
in 15 minutes, that's 10% of your retirement fund gone. That really gave me an understanding as to who I could actually help and who I needed to help protect, whose money I needed to help protect. I had a mentor that uh, used to say, lose the money, but never lose the less. Right. Uh, can you explain what wealth cycles and asset cycles are and how the super wealthy use these cycles to position their assets to profit and build enormous wealth? Absolutely. So most people are generally, you know, most people are generally stuck to one investment type. So most people will have one of three, right, which is either cash, uh, which most people consider as an investment, or they'll have real estate or they'll have stocks. Now, all of these, just these three three assets. Every every asset goes in a cycle. There's different. There's money, i.e., wealth, true wealth is money. It's not actually cash. Money. I don't. I try and I try and become very very conscious that wealth and cash are two different things. Wealth is purchasing power, and that's the only thing the super wealthy are focused on. Is how do I increase my purchasing power? And when I find when I think like that, it becomes very very clear as to what needs to happen. And what decisions I need to make. So, if you were focusing on how do I increase my cash, well, you know that's that's one avenue of thought. If you're thinking about how do I increase my purchasing power, now it's like, okay, so where can I park my money so that my purchasing power goes up over the next five years? And this debate turns into, okay, so say for right now it's gold and silver, I think, over the next ten years, and at that point it's going to be. Where do I park my money so that my purchasing power increases again? And then I'm, I think it's going to be oil and energy, but we'll see. I don't know. I don't really look that far into the distant future like that. And then so the, the, the thought process is always where is my money? Like where can I increase the purchasing power of my money? And it's really the amount of it just is secondary because the amount is a very, very illusionary concept because as you know with inflation, you know, somebody with a million dollars in 1970s lives a $30,000 a year lifestyle right now. Right. You know, that's how much inflation is affected. But they still see a million dollars in the bank account. But real inflation has cost your money that much. And that's why when you stay in cash, when you stay in just real estate that goes up and down in eight-year cycles, or when you stay in just stocks, you're setting yourself up for cycles that – uh, just you know, you're welcoming you're welcoming issues every three or four years, approximately, depending on how much of the allocation you have in each in each asset. And the ultimate, you know, the ultimate long term cycle is cash, going all the way back to 1671. As soon as there is whatever the form of cash is at that point, around every 38 years, we return back to the original money, which is gold and silver. And that's where we're at now with the U.S. dollar in its current state being in existence for 44, 45 years. So that's really the long of the picture of it. There is the, the trend of money, right, with cash. And then there is the trend of the asset cycles and how the wealthy are navigating it. Is they'll look at it and go, how do I increase my the value of my purchasing power, and they're not really worried about the increase in the value of cash. Right, and that leads me to my next question too. I've seen you brought up a, a very important concept of reevaluating our understanding of what money is and the overall concept of money. Can you share your philosophy on money and what it is? Firstly, I think this is so important because, you know, when I close, when I, I've spoken on stage, I you know, do webinars and things like that, I always say to people, you know, close your eyes and uh, just picture some money. 
<laughs> and immediately you picture dollar bills flying around everywhere, right? Uh, right. The truth is, is that that's one form of money. Because money has been chickens, money has been gold, money has been silver, money has been cows, money has been tulips, money has been all these things. But right now we are programmed as a society to believe that money is U.S. dollar bills or British pounds. It's it's a some form of paper thing. So really the biggest lesson for me has been personally really separating the understanding of the acquiring of money to the acquiring of purchasing power. And that that distinction, when you go, money isn't cash, money is purchasing power. Uh, I think that is uh, that that's the key differential right there. So to me, money equals purchasing power. And that ties me into my next question too. We've seen currencies all over the world being devalued uh, rapidly, whether it's the U.S. dollar, the British pound, the euro. Can you explain the concept that you teach of the cash matrix? Right. So the cash matrix is it's a very simplified version of the current currency situation that we have right now. Every single currency has I'm going to make this very very simple. It's very much more complicated than this, but this is the, the simplest way to explain it. So, for example, say you have uh $100 in print right now, okay? And the whole society has a piece of that and you have $1 uh, of that $100 in circulation right now. So you currently own 1% of the total money supply that's available to the society right now. The value of that really depends on how much are people are willing to hand over their money to, to give to you for that 1%. Now, the key thing is where the cash matrix comes in is the government, because you're no longer playing your own game, you know they've issued the currency. So they can come and say, hmm, uh, we think we're going to print, uh, you know, another hundred dollars. So suddenly, without asking you, without your permission, without anything in that society, another hundred dollars comes flooding in. So now there's two hundred dollars in circulation. However, they haven't just, you know, we would love everybody to get a wire transfer uh, of that, you know, trillion dollars that they printed. But <laughs> there's no even distribution of that. So right. in the system, what you what you have now is you still hold your one dollar, except there's now two hundred dollars in circulation. So your value, your purchasing power of the whole money supply, has gone from one percent to half a percent, and that, in the grand scheme of things, is really what's happening with money right now and being lost in the cash matrix because they don't require your permission, they don't require a vote, they don't require anything. In fact. You know, in the U.S., the Federal Reserve actually has higher authority than the president of the United States. Right. So that, you know, there is no there is really no way to in to insulate yourself against the cash matrix. And what we do, how we fight against that is we say, hmm, OK, so there's less money supply over in China. So let me go and buy some 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 Chinese currency. And that will protect my money more. But then China stopped printing money. So right now what we have is this whole chase around of everyone printing money. It's sort of like a race to the bottom. And if you're in the cash matrix, that's what's happening to your money. And if you've had any money since 1970s, like I said earlier, the rate of inflation in the USA, the real rate of inflation in the USA, a million dollars in the 1970s is buying you a $30,000 a year lifestyle now in comparison. 
That's a very important point because uh, what what you just mentioned too. A lot of folks, if you would ask them who's the most powerful person in the world, they would say the president of the United States. But in effect, the central the the, the central bankers and the president of the Federal Reserve and the chairman has more power uh, with regards to the money in circulation than the president of the United States. Right. You guys are doing really extraordinary things at your company, Gold and Silver for Life, adding a lot of value to your clients and teaching them how to hold gold and silver to protect their capital from devaluation. Yeah. And then you guys also teach them how to use their gold and silver to create income streams. So you're teaching them how to protect their purchasing power and then also create cash flow from the, the gold and silver. And I see that you guys have a 92% student success rate, which is almost unheard of. What are the foundational principles you've built your company on and the mission and purpose of your company, Gold and Silver for Life? My biggest mission is protecting the right of people that to exercise their freedom and to protect and take advantage of the opportunities that they have in their life. That is what this is built on. That is what everything I do is built on. We live in a world where the systems that we're playing with, just like we said about the cash matrix, you're playing in somebody else's system. You know, it is the Hunger Games, basically. They can drop anything into the system uh, and they can print a trillion dollars with no vote, nothing. And suddenly your money is devalued. That is right, not right. control. If you really want wealth, you've got to learn how to con- – the control of wealth is more important than the actual ownership of it. You know, and so that's really our the founding principle is just helping people, protecting their right to exercise their freedom and protecting the opportunities that they have in their life and the right to take advantage of those opportunities. That's what the founding principle of Golden Silver Life is. And yes, we do have a huge success rate. I think we're very, very proud of that. And one of the one other key thing is we've got clients in 39 different countries. So that success rate, it's not with five people sitting in a room with me standing over them. For 24 hours a day, making sure that they're doing it. We, this is a, this was an anonymous survey that actually somebody that I hired sent out to our clients on my behalf and got it independent, got an independent response from each, all from all the clients. And so that's how the 92% rate came, came around. I was completely shocked because when I was teaching trading, the success rate we were dealing with was what the trading industry average is, which is 3%. So when I saw that, even I was, even I was lost for words. When I saw that, but really it's, it's safe investments. It is protecting your right to, to exercise your freedoms and, and take advantage of opportunities. Gold and silver are just a great way uh, to do that for the next 10 years. I like that values of self ownership, independence and being self reliant, taking matters into your own hands and not depending on, on anything else. One of the things that you teach your clients is to structure and then self-managed strategic lifestyle investments. Can you explain the philosophy and principles behind these lifestyle investments? Yeah, I think that uh, a lot of people that are sold, yeah, it's something that you, that you do very well, right? Something that uh, people are, as you, I'm sure you've noticed as well, people are sold investing like it's a job. <laughs> you know, and investing shouldn't be a job. Uh, I like the way that, I like the way that you guys do it. It's, it's about how do you, plan right now so that you can take advantage of whatever you want to take advantage of in the future. And you don't have to spend all day doing it. I feel like 
you know, and I come from the seminar world, so this is sort of like me talking about my people right now. But right. I feel like there is too much testosterone. There is just too much of you must do this all the time, 24-7, be a hustler and really create, you know, uh, use investments as if it was a business. But the truth is, is that investments, you should be, you shouldn't actually be spending time on investment. If it's a good investment, you should actually be buying it and leaving it alone. Right? That's what the true definition of an investment is. It's not a business. So for me, when I say a lifestyle investment, what I mean by that is something that takes 25 minutes a month to do. Something that you can do from anywhere in the world. I can, you know, manage my whole portfolio from my iPhone from anywhere in the world, um, as long as I have an internet connection. That to me is a lifestyle investment. It's something that provides me the lifestyle beyond just the money. Because we know a lot of investors that are into investments that have, you know, don't even have the lifestyle, let alone the money being generated from that investment. You know, and what's the point? You're just, you're just filling your life with something to do. Uh, right. And the investment should be giving you lifestyle, not, you know, taking up your life. Now, building wealth is also based on a powerful mindset and a solid philosophical foundation. Can you talk about the wealth triangle philosophy, the philosophy behind your principles that you teach your clients and also talk about the principles you teach them? Yeah, so uh, the wealth triangle philosophy, what I realized very, very quickly was that three things have to happen for you to create a flow of wealth. Uh, and I don't mean, you know, getting getting lucky ones. I mean, a consistent flow, a systematic increase in wealth that really you have to try hard to stop. And that's what we all want at the end of the day. I think uh, we want something that continues, continues working, will work um, and just will never stop unless I put a stop to it. I think we would all love a wealth plan like that. And what I realized was that there's three key principles. Number one, the first part of the triangle is buying. You make your money when you buy the investment, not when you sell it, which is a key key differential, differential point. So you've got to buy it at the best price. You've got to buy it as close to market or as below market as you can, the best price possible. With real estate, we could buy it below market. With gold and silver, most people are buying bricks, bars, and coins at 20, 30, 40% above market. And that is, right, right. that is killing their portfolio from day one because the, the asset has to go up 40% for you to even break even. So that's principle number one. You've got to buy it as close to market or below market as possible because the truth is that the big boys are buying it at market. Specifically regarding gold and silver, they're buying it at market. They can go in and buy it at the spot price and suddenly they're way ahead of you. If they, if they buy something at the market price and you, you buy it at market plus 40%, they're ahead of you. They're winning. They're out of the game by the time the metal increases 30% and you're still, you're still 10% in the hole. You know, and they've made their profit and they're out of there. So that's, that's step number one. Step number two, the second part of the triangle, is cash flow. Again, that time in the market is more important than timing the market. You've got to be able to stay in the market no matter what happens. And most people screw this up with number one, over leveraging and number two, not having a plan with their cash flow. So they'll over leverage, increase their costs of holding the investment and then not have a plan to actually finance the investment. And then they'll be financing the investment from other income. And then pretty soon it becomes very ineffective to actually do that. And actually, most be I know some people, not some, a lot of people, especially in 2008, that were holding on to investments, hoping they were going to turn around that actually went bankrupt because they were just holding on to the investment, wishing that it was going to turn around. And so 
you've got to have the cash flow side of it. If you don't have the cash flow side of it, it's just, you know, for the long term, it's not going to work. That's my philosophy. That's, I believe everything that I've seen in business and in long term investments has proved that. There are some exceptions. Like, for example, if you have a 10 million pound portfolio or a 10 million dollar portfolio and you want to invest 250,000 into something, that's different. You know, you've got an abundance of capital. This is, I'm talking about an overall strategy for your portfolio. And then part three, the third part of the triangle is compounding. Because if you buy an asset that is going up in value and you buy it at the right price and you buy it below market value and then you get the cash flow and you know that this asset's going to continue going up because otherwise why would you have bought it in the first place because you've done your research? Why wouldn't you want to buy more of that asset, right? People, right. people, I believe that people are too afraid to jump all in, right? They'll be risky on the way. They'll, they'll be, they'll be too risk averse on the way, on the way up. And then, and then they'll, they'll by the time it's, it's going down, they're thinking they're missing out. So they'll, so they'll start piling on the risk on the way down. And suddenly, you know, they've, uh, they've screwed their portfolio. So you've got to compound. You've got to buy more of that asset that's going up in the direction that you want it to go. And you've got to buy it at the right price. And then again, cash flow it again. And so those are the three principles of the world's triangle philosophy. It's buy an asset that's obviously going up in the right direction, uh, where you want it to go over the next 10 years at the right price, buy below market value if possible, but as close to the true market value as possible. Then cash flow it so you can stay in the investment regardless of what happens, and then obviously compound it so you can buy more of that asset. That's really, really good information, buying right, and that comes from financial education, knowing when it's the right time or not to buy an asset and then cash flowing it over appreciation and then compounding it. And as you've discussed with wealth cycles and asset cycles, knowing where you are in the wealth and asset cycle and then compounding it until that asset cycle is peaked and it's time for another asset class, correct? That's right. And then just take the cash flow, take the capital that you generated in that and then move it along. The, thing, the key thing is that the wealth triangle philosophy, the way that I talk about it, it's not it's not like this is an, op- it's an it's not an opportunity. It is this is the principle for building wealth. Everything that I've ever done, real estate, stocks, now gold and silver, has been built on this philosophy. This philosophy is sort of like the blueprint for creating long term wealth. The next decision you have to make is where is the next opportunity? Where is the next investment cycle? Where is the next asset that's going up? But once you know that and you know the wealth triangle philosophy, it's so simple to continue growing your wealth. You just set it into motion. Very valuable information. Now, one uh, habit I've observed from wealthy and successful people is that they're always studying new subjects and learning new skills. What are you currently studying and what new skill sets are you currently learning? One thing that I'm currently very, very, very fascinated by is I'm fascinated by a topic called biohacking. This is something where it's a group of individuals, I'd say a a community of individuals, who are literally taking health and optimizing human performance uh, into their own hands and really studying the value of um, the nutrients that are in this planet and how they can actually enhance the human genome and also the human functionality without going using the medical systems and the services that we have. I mean, you guys have Obamacare, which I'm very, very sorry about. Uh, but uh, Canada and the UK are all right, right? So, uh, but regardless of that, I'm fascinated by biohacking. I'm fascinated with the compounded growth in biohacking right now. I'm fascinated 
by cognitive enhancement science that's coming out. I'm fascinated that, you know, by 2029, potentially there will be medicine that you can inject into somebody and it will be nanites that can download particular viruses. Uh, sorry, the, the, the solution, the antiviruses for, for particular things. And you will experience health that is, uh, has never been experienced in the world. And that will be cost. I know I have a fascinating talk with a doctor in San Diego and he had just received some financing for stem cell research. And they told me about a story where a prominent political figure had back pain and they, um, took out some stem cells. Uh, they did what they needed to do. I'm not sure. I'm not a scientist at all. I'm just fascinated by this stuff. And then the next day, this prominent political figure, I'm not going to mention who, walked into their lab, um, was injected with the new stem cells, and that afternoon was back on the campaign rally with no more pain. Oh, wow. Now, that, the science that's coming out right now is amazing. I mean, the fact that you can get a full genetic profile with a company like 23andMe for £125 or $170, whatever it is, and you can know right now that any medication that the medical services provide you is either going to work for you or not because it goes against your genes, which never change. The fact that it's already it's only under $200 to figure that out, I'm very, very excited about what, what's going to happen with the health space. It certainly is a very interesting and exciting time to be alive. I think that's some of the views that Ray Kurzweil has as well, correct? That's exactly right. Very, very interesting. Who are some of the people that influence you and that, that you study and follow? In terms of investing, obviously, you, you know, I've studied Warren Buffett, who I really like. But really, as, in terms of creating success, I like thinkers that figure things out in a way that's great for their customers. And so for those, the two people that I really admire is, is Steve Jobs and Elon Musk, two very different generations. I think very, very much the same sort of perspective on how to figure things out. Uh, but as far as investing goes, I really like I, I like Warren Buffett. I like Ray Dalio. I like I like, I'm a big fan of Sir John Templeton too. I, one of the key things that I think I've realized with these guys is that they just enjoy it. Right. You know, I, they just enjoy the process. They enjoy bringing whatever they want to do to the world. And so, yeah, and and also I'm a big fan in terms of business and elevating one's self out of one's circumstances, which, you know, as we all have become successful, we've all had to do. I mean, I come from a borough in London uh, called Newham, which people can go and do a Google on. And Newham is, you know, 62% of all income, all households earn less than the poverty line in Newham. I come from a place where conversations are are based on, you know, every conversation on the street are based on who won the latest sports match or, you know, how do we increase our benefits checks? Our, 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 so that's where I come from. I'm a big fan of transcending, of people that have transcended their environment to reach a certain place. And so uh, an artist called Jay-Z actually inspires me a lot too, just with his ability and his journey of doing that. So I'm inspired by a lot of people in a lot of different spaces. Uh, with investing, I'm mainly inspired by people that have, said some set something into motion and been able to stick with it you know i'm not in i'm not inspired by the investor that manages to do something once and gets a one-hit wonder i've just never been drawn to that you know a lot of people are drawn to that i'm not drawn to that at all I'm drawn to the person that managed to keep it going for 20 years for 30 years you know that that right, right. 
Yeah, and that's also that has a lot to do with our media too. The uh, you know the one hit wonder that's a good media headline and a, and a story, but the folks that put in the hard yards and have uh, a track record of twenty or thirty years of a phenomenal journey is just uh, it's fantastic to study those folks and, and see how they've done it. Yeah, I think that you know if anyone wants a basic understanding of any an introduction to any of these investors, I think a great book is actually Money by Tony Robbins. You know, I think that his interviews with Ray Dalio, with everybody else that's in the book, those interviews are just worth reading from that book. Just to understand these guys are not people, you know, it is possible to continuously grow wealth for 20 or 30 years. It's not just a luck thing. It's not you're going to go to, a, you know, an, a, an event and suddenly have an opportunity and suddenly it's going to. It's just gonna, it's gonna happen out of thin air. No, it takes practice. You're gonna have to go to multiple events. You're gonna have to keep going to events. You're gonna have to keep in the system. You're gonna have to understand exactly how things work and really commit to it. But it's possible. There's a lot of great content in that book. I actually <laughs> read it twice and then also got the audio version okay. because there's so many things you miss the first time. So that's a fantastic resource. Are there any other books you would recommend? As far as investing goes, no. Uh, and the reason why I don't, I, I never really recommend any books on investment strategy per se, because I just think that investment strategy is one of those things that you have to figure out. There's not really a, a particular investment strategy that's going to work for everyone. I think that you've got to know a blueprint, like I said, the wealth triangle philosophy, and then you've got to learn how to analyze the, the market with the wealth cycles that are going on and then figure out, you know, the real work is figure out how do we implement this wealth triangle philosophy on this particular cycle and that's what i enjoy doing and that's what i've really spent my whole life doing you know thus far speak with real estate we have to figure out okay how do we buy this property for the lowest possible price you know and then how do we cash flow for the most uh, and then how do we buy more and how do we create this system to just keep it going with gold and silver? I have to do the same thing. How do we, what's the best way of buying gold and silver? How do we buy it at the market price, the same price that the big boys are buying it at? Then how do we cash flow it? How do we make that safe? And then how do we create those systems? I really enjoy that. So I don't think there's a book on investments. One of the big, one of the best books that I've ever read is actually Titan, uh, Biography and Rockefeller. That's what that, that book inspires me a lot. Thank you for sharing. So, Munesh, if you cannot pass on any money to your children or grandchildren, and you are only allowed to pass on five principles to them of how to build wealth, what would they be? Uh, number one, you got to have high self-esteem. We live in a we live in a world where uh, there is too much information being thrown at you. There is too much being um, put on you and expectations being put on you where if you don't develop your self-esteem to start with, it's very, very hard to actually exert your intention into the world. And the second one is have a great, have a great intention. Really put your intention out there. Be okay with understanding that you want to create wealth. There is nothing wrong with wanting to create wealth. All the greatest wealth builders in history, Rockefeller, Carnegie, J.P. Morgan, you know, I'm not talking about the building. I'm talking about the actual J.P. Morgan. <laughs> they, they all had an intention, a deep intention for wealth. And there is nothing wrong with that. I feel like we live in a society now where the very principle of wealth is, is bad. And I think that's, you know, quite frankly, a lot of bullshit. 
Um, I think that if we if we if we had more desire for wealth, then the world would be a much better place. The desire for profit, and so I I firmly believe. Moving on to principle number three, that understand that money is the root of all good. You know that's an Ayn, that's an Ayn Rand quote from Atlas Shrugged, but understand that money is the root of all good because you yes one person can do something good to another person and for another person and that in that moment that good has, that good energy has been exchanged but that's it however money finance wealth allows you to create systems structures and principles that can outlast any one individual to continue creating good in the world way past you. So money is the root of all good, um, as far as as far as that goes. The, the fourth one would be don't try. If you have to try something, it means you're failing at something. I don't believe in trying. I believe in either doing it or not doing it. So trying is an illusion that I think is created in the world. You know, we one of the things that disappoints me the most now is schools. You know, people get rewarded and. I don't know what it's like in the U.S., but in the U.K., people get rewarded for taking part and trying and not winning. So we're getting right, right. our self-esteem from trying. Trying means you're still lost. Trying means you're still broke. Trying means you don't have wealth. Trying doesn't get you the win. It's the win that matters. So get your dopamine hits from the actual winning, not the trying principle of it. And number five would be find a strategy that you really enjoy and then focus on that and be, be, be really great at that. And so that really is, uh, I think a lot of that is mindset. You know, I think, um, as you highlighted earlier, um, it is mindset. It, you've got to have a deep desire for wealth and you've got to believe in yourself that you can do it. When you have those two things that align, you know, the rest of it is just a case of what do I really enjoy? What can I do? You can create wealth in anything in the world right now, especially right now. With the hyper-connectivity of the world that we have, you can create wealth. You can, I can have gold and silver bought and stored for me in Singapore without ever having to step foot on the island of Singapore. When has that ever been possible for somebody with just $5,000 to invest? Yeah, it's amazing. It's an amazing world we live in. So. That's what those, that, well, those would be my principles, but like I said, a lot of it is mindset because I think that's the number one most important thing, which is why, you know, I think that a lot of investment programs have very low success rates because they don't invest in the mindset of clients. And so one of the things that we do, as I'm sure you know, is we have weekly coaching calls that people just can come to for as long as they want to without ever having to pay another fee. You, we've got people from 2010 still attending today. And the reason for that is, is that when something happens in the market, when the market goes down 30%, they can get on the phone and I can actually help them through the thought process of the market going down 30%. And that's what creates long-term success. It's the mindset and the ability to stick with the mindset. Two really good points that you've brought up. The first one is the philosophy of money is the root of all good. The media has heavily pushed to eat the rich and text the 1%, and the 1% has become a media target. And the majority of people have jumped on the bandwagon because of their frustrations with banking and financial institutions and the status quo and their own personal situation. I think if, you, if we look at money in a free market context as a representation of value and a medium of exchange, 
if you've done well, it means that you've provided value to the world through your special gift, your product, or your services. Money is an expression and byproduct of value. The focus shouldn't be on money, but it's creating value for others. The more people you serve and provide value to, the more you will be rewarded monetarily, as it is a representation of the value you provided to others. Why would you not want to try and provide as much value as possible to other people? I just want to just jump in there. That yeah. of the 1%, you know, 1% in the USA is $400,000 a year. It's not billions. So, right. So that, that, that amazes me always whenever I hear that. It's a good headline, like you said. But the key thing is, is that I think that that hate is actually just a manifestation of low self-esteem and the, the low feeling of value, of the feeling of valuelessness. Uh, and I think that's why that hate that we have in the world. People have got a low self-esteem and they don't believe they have value to offer to the world. Therefore, this hate has manifested in this way. That's what I think it is. That's why I say self-esteem has got to be number one. The other point you brought up was that in schools in the UK, students are rewarded for participating in activities and sports. It's very similar here in the United States where children receive participatory trophies for merely enrolling in a sport or an activity. I think that these children are being deprived of really important life lessons that the sport and activities teach. Most of the lessons I've personally learned have been from failures, whether it be in sports, relationships, business, and investing. These failures have only motivated me to work harder and be better in those areas than I, than I was before. We have a very big entitlement problem as well in the West, since these children and students never had to work hard to earn those trophies. I feel that they were deprived of a very important part of their development as people. And I think that we know we get now to winning is a dopamine hit. Just to talk from a very scientific, uh, very, very simple perspective, right? Just as our human response, a natural instinct. Winning is a dopamine hit. And so we pursue winning because we want that dopamine hit. We are trained to go for dopamine hits. It's the same reason why you will, why you will uh, speak to the beautiful woman. It's all those, it's those dopamine hit pursuits that you're after. Well, if your dopamine hits come from trying and your dopamine hits come from posting pictures on social media and people liking them and your dopamine hits come from somebody saying, you know, oh, you did well, next time is going to be better, right? Right. You're eventually going to turn into somebody who's satisfied with that. And that's the problem. That's really the problem. It's that we've been desensitized to actually getting the right dopamine hit from the right place. And having the right investment that turns into profit is a dopamine hit. That's winning. You know, having a building a business that you're proud of is winning. Just posting something on social media that gets 50 likes, you know, people still get dopamine hits over that, but that's not winning. Not winning right, at right. all. Now, Minesh, how can my audience learn more about you, your company, Gold and Silver for Life, your blog, and stay in touch with you and keep informed of all of your projects? I rarely use Facebook, but I'm on Facebook if you want to keep in touch with me personally. If you want to find out about Gold and Silver for Life, obviously, goldandsilverforlife.com. Uh, I have a personal blog, which I rarely update, but it's when I do it, it's a long post that uh, are really introspections of what I'm learning, and that's at minishbindi.com. But really, just Google me. Go to Facebook, whatever. If you if you really want to find me, you'll you'll manage to find me. I guarantee you that. Minish, thank you so much for joining me on today's podcast and providing so much valuable information. 
and sharing the values and principles and philosophy behind your business and investing strategies. I've been following you and the amazing value your business provides for other people by empowering them to protect their purchasing power of their savings and teaching them how to create income streams from their precious metals. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow once said, a single conversation across the table with a wise man is better than 10 years mere study of books. After today's conversation, I know exactly what Mr. Longfellow meant. Thank you for sharing so much valuable information today. I want to say you've done an amazing job with what you're doing here. I think you're providing people insights that most people would never be able to get. And I think I just want to congratulate you and commend you for doing this. This is absolutely amazing. And thank you for having me. It's an honor. Thank you so much, Manish. Thank you for joining me and my guest, Manish Bendy. You can access the Advanced Gold and Silver Investing webinar that Manish and his company, Gold and Silver for Life, is hosting at cashflowninja.com forward slash gold silver webinar. You can also access his 20-minute gold and silver savings account training at cashflowninja.com forward slash gold silver savings. During the first two months of our podcast, we're giving away a $500 Visa gift card. All you have to do to get entered into the drawing is go to cashflowninja.com forward slash iTunes and rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast. Until next time, live a life of passion and purpose on your terms. You have been listening to the Cashflow Ninja with your host, MC Laubscher, the podcast empowering and inspiring people to discover how to generate their own income and manage, grow, and protect their own wealth in the new economy. Today's show notes and resources are available on our website, CashflowNinja.com. This presentation is for educational and informational purposes only. The information being presented and considered does not consider your particular financial objectives or situation, and it does not make personalized recommendations. This material is not intended to replace the advice of a qualified tax and legal advisor or other qualified professionals, and you should not use the information in place of a customized consultation with a licensed professional regarding your specific personal financial objective, situation, and needs. We believe the information provided is reliable, but we do not guarantee its accuracy, timeliness, or completeness. 